0: You are listening to How We Got Loud. Hey everybody, welcome back. I'm your host, Chris Leonard, and we are on a journey together exploring stories about the people, technology, and passion that built the history of live sound. The San Francisco Bay Area was very influential in the music scene in the late 60s and early 70s. In this episode, I'm talking with Lee Brinkman who spent over 50 years working in many of the iconic venues there, like the Avalon ballroom family dog on the great highway and the great American music hall. I hope you're enjoying this podcast and journey. If you like what we have going on so far and want to support the podcast, you could do a few things to help. First, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast platform you listen on. Second, Tell a friend, nothing is better than old-fashioned word of mouth. You can also support me on Patreon. This will help cover fees, research materials, and time dedicated to this project. Please check out the link in the show notes for more details, and over time, I will work on exclusive content for our Patreon supporters. Lastly, another way you can help support this project is to go get some swag from our merch store. We have shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, stickers, and more. Click on the link in the show notes to see everything we have. After all, we all need one more black shirt, right? I would like to thank Earthworks for sending me their new Icon podcasting microphone. It looks awesome and sounds great. A very influential person in live sound history is Bob Cohen. He was the co-owner, co-manager, and sound engineer for the family dog, which was the San Francisco concert promoter that ran neck and neck with Bill Graham. Cohen went on to start his own sound company called Lumiere Productions. He invented the modern day intercom system and founded the company ClearCom with Charlie Button. Lee Brinkman was there in the shop as Bob and Charlie were drawing the schematics out on butcher paper. For the last 47 years, Lee has worked at the Great American Music Hall as the house sound tech and later becoming the sound department head. We spent a fair amount of time in this episode talking about the progression of gear through the years there, along with some memorable shows like Duke Ellington's last San Francisco performances, Robin's William HBO special, and many more. Let's jump in now and hear Lee's journey. So Lee, let's, let's jump right into this. Um, You had a note here when you sent me your information that said police harassment of venue, Jimi Hendrix at Regis college of um, February 14th, 1968. What is, what is that about?
1: Okay. First off at that time, the family dog had opened in September, 1967. And um, there was one Denver police officer on the you know vice-slash-narcotics squad that was going to squash the hippie menace. And so he would pull stunts like the family dog was in a, not an entertainment district, it was kind of out by itself on Evans Avenue. And he would do things like park police cruisers two or three blocks away on each side and just turn on the lights on the roof. It wouldn't stop anybody, but they, you know, just to, 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 oh, there's a bus going on. We're not going. And then it started escalating. um, And the band Canned Heat was playing at the Family Dog for a weekend. And uh, they played Friday night and Saturday afternoon. The police raided their motel and arrested them. So they couldn't play Saturday night. And it has since come out that it was a plant. It was a setup. It was totally, there's uh, there's a guy who wrote a, a piece in the Denver Bar Association Journal about it 20 years after the fact. And the detective's name was John Gray. And so they had a couple of local bands fill in that night, but of course, nobody came. Because word was out, they busted the family dog. Remember, no internet then; it was all right. rumors, phone, word of mouth. So that was that was still in nineteen sixty seven. Family dog still operating. They did not promote the show at Regis College. That was another promoter, who later became very prominent in the area. So he just basically rented this Catholic men's college field house hmm. to put on a Jimi hendrix concert and the band was touring with their own pa okay stand by it's 1968 wow okay their pa consisted of a vox churchill mixer amp about 120 watts optimistically same power stage as a vox super beetle solid state amp but with mic inputs Hmm. and two column speakers with six, 10 inch speakers each. (laughs) That was the extent of the touring PA Of course plus three Marshall stacks, a Marshall stack and, you know, some sun bass amps for the bass.
0: I mean, those tower speakers would have been only been for vocals, right? I mean, Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, it was the whole thing was just for vocals. Well, the show sold so quickly and the same light show that was doing the family dog shows was hired to do the light show. But the show sold out on the main floor and this was one of those old field houses that has a running track around Mm -hmm. the mezzanine.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So they sold standing room in the running track. And somebody said, well, how's the sound going to get up there? (laughs) And so my... Contribution is: I went to the family dog and I packed up two A7s and an eighty, you know, eighty watt Altec amp, schlepped them over to Regis set them up on the side of the running track where the band was. They'd block that one off. They were only selling the other three sides because they didn't want anybody directly above the band. Um, and I dropped a cable down and figured a way to jury-rigged the line output from the Churchill back up to the Altec. And so, you know, I was the local supplement PA. Nice. And the opening act on that show was the soft machine. They did the whole tour. And Robert Wyatt was playing drums, wearing tidy whities and a cowboy hat.
0: (laughs) And also... The original cowboy then huh i guess exactly
1: well <laughs> way ahead of his time uh and that stock machine really impressed me i'd never heard of them before but they were more jazzy than you know hendrix for sure so that's the that's the hendrix story
0: so uh was was there was there a tech traveling with jimmy was it a was it a was it no. a comp- company that had,
1: roadie, like- had roadies yeah the same guy that set up the back line plugged the you know the three microphones into the Churchill. i think they might have had one extra mic that they put somewhere near to the drums
0: so and there, there's no ride levels at that point right you're just gaining it up and it just it, it, the level set it just is what it is right at that yeah
1: point. yeah basically you turn you turn the vocal mics up until they feedback. back back them off and that's what you get <laughs>
3: because
1: in those days singers and rock bands had to project right and they also had in some ways better internal dynamics, like as loud as that band was, when it was time for the vocals, they'd throttle down.
0: Now I did a search about that gig uh before we talked and there's actually recording from that night. Uh, oh
1: yeah. It's pretty roomy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: who would who would have done that recording? Were they doing that each night or
1: uh no that definitely wasn't the band. That was either a fan or someone at the college. I don't, it certainly wasn't name one from the family dog or Line productions.
0: Nice, nice. Well, I'll, <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be sure to put a link to that in the, uh, the description on the website for the for this episode, just to, for nostalgia's sake, people if people want to check it out. So it's, uh, it's interesting. Yeah. And this is still, I mean, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but Hendrix, this was his first national tour. Is what I saw on when I was researching that, right? I mean, this was he was still pretty his new.
1: Headliner. He was still pretty new, but the word was already out, so. You know, he might have, in normal circumstances, played the family dog. He mm. was already so popular that they went for a big, you know, the other promoter went for the bigger venue. And then Hendrix went to the family dog that night. They weren't even open. He and, excuse me, their standard just jammed for invited guests and friends. American standards guitarist was Tommy Boland, who later became fairly, fairly famous. But Tommy was at that time an 18 or 19-year-old runaway from Sioux City, Iowa.
2: Hmm.
1: And he later went on to play with Billy Cobham, Deep Purple...
0: So let, let, let's jump back then. All right. So how does, how does one get there? You know, what, what was, what was your start in audio? How did, how did you make your way to that point? Obviously there's more beyond that, but how did you, what was, how did you get an audio?
1: Absolute beginning. I was the kid who always took things apart to see what made them tick. And my first audio thing was my sister's tube radio. I'm very lucky. I did not electrocute myself, but <laughs> And so by the time I'm in the fourth or fifth grade, I'm the AV nerd. In my elementary school, normally you had to be in the sixth grade to be on the AV team. Well, second half of fourth grade, because I knew how to thread a bell and hell tape recorder, I mean bell and hell projector, wall and sack tape recorder, set up a screen, tear it down. I was actually getting called out in my classroom to go set up, a movie in somebody else's
0: in fourth grade in fourth grade. Nice.
1: And so by the time I'm in junior high school and high school, I'm running the Bogan PA. And uh, I started working with bands, in, you know, school bands. And then by the time I'm in high school, I'm gigging with bands on weekends. <laughs> Cause at that time in Colorado, they had uh, a split liquor law. There was a whole circuit of clubs that sold 3.2% beer that you could drink when you were 18. Hmm. And I wasn't 18, but I could pass. <laughs> <laughs> and I wasn't drinking, but that's not the I wasn't supposed to be in, but I was working. And- And these clubs were totally patronized only by people between the ages of 18 and about 22. Right. Because anyone older than that didn't want to hang out with the kids. The most famous of those clubs was called Tulagi. And it was in Boulder on the hill near the university of Colorado. And it was for many years, it was the closest place to campus you could drink.
3: Hmm.
1: So it was very popular with frat boys so if your band was playing at Chawagi, you played Friday afternoon club, which means you were set up and you played your first set from five until six on Friday afternoon so that the frat boys could get a head start on the weekend. And,
0: and what, what kind of gear would have been in that, that club at the time?
1: The, the clubs didn't provide. Only one club in the, in the Denver area provided a PA. Oh wow. And that was a club that had started out as a folk club called the Exodus. And they had a pair of A7s hanging sideways because it was a very low ceiling room and the horn turned, you know, 90 degrees inside the box it looks great. And a Bogan 30 watt challenger amp. Everywhere else you had to bring your own PA and it was usually two column speakers and a mixer amp. Usually uh, custom was the most common in that part of the world. All high impedance mic inputs, so you're mixing side of stage, right? Running back and forth. I had the high tech setup. I had two Electro Voice LR seven columns, which were like banana shaped speakers with six by nines in them. But they were, it was kind of the pre Vocal Master Vocal Master.
0: Gotcha. And so at that time, you, you know. You, you probably where were you were you trying to pursue doing audio or just it was just the thing it was you... just the
1: thing i did i get hey I, I was cool i got to hang out with the bands you know yeah, yeah. and no i mean the career path i was supposed to become a librarian <laughs> <laughs> i was going to go to mcgill university study library science and become a librarian and uh that was sidetracked because of uh family emergency I had to come home help my mom run the store and uh, at the end of that summer one of those bands I had worked with in high school had gone professional and they said hey we're going to go play some gigs in Kansas and Nebraska you want to get in the van you know we'll pay you and feed you and I did that came back to Denver worked at Bob Gately's place. And then one day uh, the sound man at the family dog, which had just opened in September, 1967, a few weeks, a few months later, they were out of pot. This was a disaster for the people who had relocated from San Francisco to run the place in Denver. (laughs) Well,
0: let's sit there for one minute. So just for people who don't know. um, So what was family? What was Family
1: family dog productions was company that started out as a commune, and the members of the commune started dropping off, and eventually it was just Chet Helms, Bob Cohen, and a couple of other people ran the Avalon Ballroom in San Francisco, which was the Avis to Bill Graham's Hertz. Bill Graham ran the Fillmore Auditorium, Family Dog Productions ran the Avalon Ballroom, and they were the two primary Summer of Love and Beyond-era rock and roll ballrooms in San Francisco. Originally, Bill Graham and Family Dog alternated weekends at the Fillmore. But when Bill Graham figured out how potentially lucrative the whole thing was, he had a word with the landlord and got the exclusive. So Chet Helms went out that week and found this ballroom on Sutter Street, that no one was using for much of anything, and had a word with uh, John Hooley, the Irishman who ran it.
0: And and the and then the story I thought I read today was that they uh, so this is what became the um, the Avalon, right? I mean, that that's what became the Avalon Ballroom, that that room you're talking about.
1: Yeah, well, it was it was called the Avalon Ballroom in the '30s and '40s.
0: Right. Um, but they they weren't I guess they weren't allowed to have uh, shows and so they didn't actually build them as concerts they built them as as something else. Is that- well, they built them.
1: No, it was they were always they weren't billed as concerts. They were built as dance concerts, dance slash concerts. And the point was, um, all of the Family Dog collect, Collective Commune had gone to see uh, the Beatles at the Cow Palace. And the Rolling Stones later at the Cow Palace, and they had to stay in their seats and they were hippies and they hated mm. it. They wanted to get up and dance. Gotcha. So they were called dance concerts because there was no fixed seating. Gotcha. Kind of, yeah, it was the precursor to the 21st century rock club, where it's standing room only for everybody. And the Avalon, one technical aside, the Avalon had the dance floor mounted on huge coil springs Hmm. to keep it from shaking the frame of the rest of the building. And the sound booth was against a sidewall halfway back from the stage. And we didn't have CD players or cassette machines. Hmm. We played the break music on a turntable. And when the room was empty, there was a place on the dance floor you could go out and you could put on a record and you could go out and you could stomp your feet, count one, two, three, and the record would skip. <laughs>
3: because
1: the coil springs would pick up the pick up the vibration, and eventually would get to the booth. And the Avalon and the Fillmore both had installed sound systems, which in 1966 and 67 was still uncommon. Yeah, to have a sound system at all, much less one that was almost adequate for rock and roll. And they were all Altec voices, the theater base, because that was the best, best thing available. I think the Avalon system sounded better than the film or auditorium system because the room sounded better.
0: Hmm. Was the re- room treated in any way, or it just yeah. was the shape of it. I mean,
1: well, there were two things that made the Avalon acoustically better. It had a large, pleated velvet drape in the entire ceiling.
2: Hmm.
1: But the side walls, except for the the two walls that had the light show screen, were still untreated. So you had kind of a soft area, semi-absorptive where the light show screen was, and then the hard area. And at the Avalon, the stage was in the corner. Hmm. You figure a rectangle, and in one of the corners of the short wall you have the stage, and it's facing out into the room at an angle, which meant there were fewer standing waves.
2: Hmm.
1: You know, you know big, the big low-frequency things yeah. got broken up faster. But Bill Graham was by far the better businessman, so the Fillmore was always more successful, and the Avalon <laughs> Baldwin was always just hanging on by a thread.
0: Now those choices um, of the, the angle of the stage and all that was that, was that Bob Cohen he designed it that way on purpose? or was no. happen-
1: no, that's where the stage was when we oh, came wow. in. That's the way it was when it was a place where big bands played in the '40s. Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys played in the late '40s, early '50s. matter of mm-hmm. fact, the Bob Wills recorded shows at the Avalon Ballroom. They weren't shows, actually. They used it as a recording studio. But the recording gear was actually at Coast Recorders down the street, and they used equalized telephone lines. Because remember, you're still talking mono. Right. So the mics would be at the Avalon, but the mixer would be at Coast Recorders.
0: Wow. That's crazy.
1: But, so Bob Cohen, who you know, was one of the few of us at that time that was actually trained as an engineer. He actually went to electrical school and everything. You know, I mean, electronic school. And he got into the rock and roll scene. The er, hippie rock and roll band was called the Charlatans. And they played at a bar in Virginia City, Nevada, called the Red Dog Saloon. For several weeks but they had a psychedelic kind of artsy poster and bob cohen was hired to build a color organ because instead of having people running a light show they wanted an automated thing that would change colors around the stage and bob did this frequency divider thing where the low notes would light the blue lights and the mid oh, wow and but when the sound system wasn't working properly, he could fix that. When it, the Avalon started, he and Shet were partners. Chet handled the business and the artistic side. Bob designed the sound system, ran it, or hired people like me to run it. And he had a recording set up in the back half of the Co-check room on the second floor. But we didn't record all the shows because tape was expensive. (laughs) Yeah, sure. (laughs) So there were two stage boxes. One was a split, one wasn't. So when you weren't recording, you plugged into the one that went straight to the booth. And then when Bob was recording, you plugged into the other box and it would split, you know, and pass the split. And he was up there with a highly modified Altec broadcast console, and the four-track Ampex tape recorder.
0: So and so four-track was he um, was he mixing down uh, down and like subgrouping it? Or, like did he have more than just vocal mics on stage? Because I mean, oh yeah, we had yeah.
1: by that point we had more mics. On stage. So uh, one track would always be vocals. And then he'd right. do rhythm. He might isolate out guitars. Most of the, most of them were just guitar bands. You know, two guitarists, bass, drums. Right. So you put the bass and drums on a track, vocals on a track. And some of that got released. I do remember one time at a Grateful Dead show, a uh, heated argument between Bob Cohen and Augustus Elswee Stanley over who got the tapes at the end of the game. <laughs> and uh, some of those records came out as Vintage Dead on a shady label called Sunflower Records. And I think all parties involved sued them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right. So we, we, we talked about what Family Dog was and, and that they've come to Denver. So what, what was your involvement with Family Dog in, in, in Denver?
1: I became their sound man when their original sound man had gone away on a business trip, shall we say, and did not return in time for the next weekend's shows. And the publicist at the Family Dog knew that I could run a sound system. And so I got dropped in front of the mighty Harmon Carton mixer, and uh, I stayed there until they uh, closed operations in Denver in June of 1968 and was immediately dispatched to San Francisco with the business records all of the leftover posters, which were probably the most valuable asset they had at the Hmm. time. And uh, packed it all in my 1954 Chevy Suburban and headed to San Francisco. I arrived uh, on the 4th of July, 1968, and I started working at the Avalon the next weekend.
0: So had, had you met, um, met Bob or any of these people at the time? Had they been out to the family dog? Oh, yeah, they,
1: they all came out to Denver periodically. So Bob knew who I was when I got to San Francisco. I mean, my first stop was the family dog office on Gough Street. And I went to the shows that weekend. And then the next weekend, I was doing the sound.
0: And, and what did what did you say the mixer was at the Avalon at the time? At the Avalon, we had two Altec fifteen
1: sixty sevens, rack mount tube mixers, mm-hmm. four microphone inputs each, one bass and one treble control for each group of four. Now we had basically the same speakers as the Fillmore except they were using all Altec amplifiers. And if, and they were using the phenolic diaphragm drivers, excuse me, which were harder to blow up, but they didn't have much high frequencies over like 7,000 cycles. At the Avalon, we had Y throats on the horns, and we had the aluminum diaphragm drivers that would only handle 30 watts each. And when they went, they went very dramatically. So Bob kludged together a projection circuit using a automotive tail light bulb wired in series with the high frequency drivers, so that if you overdrove them, the light bulb would light up (laughs) and (laughs) and absorb some of the wattage. So you, if you were standing on the side of the stage and Corky Siegel was playing the harmonica directly on the microphone, you could watch the light bulb get brighter and dimmer with the dynamics of the microphone. <laughs> it was pretty amazing. And then Bob, always trying to improve things, brought, one day brought in a line amp and a five-band graphic equalizer he'd gotten from Altec. Fillmore didn't have that yet. Hmm. So, you know, we had a five-band graphic on the mono output of the main PA. And the mono is the main PA, and they were like utility Altec cabinets on pipe stands on the side of the stage.
2: Hmm.
1: Things were pretty primitive, but once again, I think the bands really... Most of them had bitter dynamics. Now, when you got into blue cheer or bands like that, the vocals were just a rumor.
0: So did you, at that time... um did you really feel like you were mixing per se, or was it, you know, for lack of better terms, damage control of just making, you know, were, were you able to like tell the bands like, Hey, we need you to turn your amps down because when you get the vocals up, this loud and stuff, <laughs> like what was, what was, uh, what was that? Uh, like? The
1: same battle I've been fighting ever since <laughs> uh, depends on the band. Some bands it was just, yeah. Just like Hendrix at Regis college, you just turned the vocal mics up until they started feeding back and back them off and, cross your fingers there were other bands you could actually mix. Uh, Cooks over messenger service you could really mix uh, the kaleidoscope you could really mix. I never mixed the Grateful Dead because they always brought their own guy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Did they bring any supplemental um, audio gear when they came?
1: Not initially um, It wasn't until we the family dog you know the Avalon Ballroom closed. They produced a couple of shows at Winterland as placeholders, and then when they reopened on the Great Highway, the Avalon system plus a duplicate of it moved there. Uh, But when the Grateful Dead played, at that time, they had assembled their own small venue PA that they took to Woodstock with them. Hmm. And it was... um, And that PA actually wound up being used as monitors at Altamont. That's another story altogether. And it consisted of a total of eight Sun, double 15 cabinets with JBL D-130s in them. And four JBL drivers on slant plate lenses that went on top of that. Mm. But bear in mind, they're using it in venues that held about 1,000 people.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's by today's standards, it's just crazy.
1: Oh, yeah. no, uh, the stuff we got, uh, the Youngbloods would bring in a supplement PA. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but for a while, Altec made kind of a pretty voice of the theaters kind of system. It had a direct radiator 15, the same horn, but it had wheels and a little pullback handle and it was Tolex covered. And the Youngbloods had one of those and they would bring that in and we would wire Jesse Colin Young's microphone into both the house system and that so that he always knew that his vocal would be on top of the mix. So,
0: so at this time, you're only four or five years into, you know, we're talking, you know, 1969, 1970 uh-huh. at this point, um, four or five years into, you know, quote unquote, your career. Um, you, you still along for the ride. You're like, Hey, you know, what did you know of the industry outside of Bob Cohen? Did you know of McCune? Did you know of other stuff in town? Like what was, well, you knew,
1: you you found out about McCune right away because they were the old line. They were the old firm. Gotcha. And everybody either worked for or with McCune's gear. You know, like, you know, if you went out and did an outdoor gig, McCune was this, usually the provider of choice because they were the only people who had more than a couple of speakers.
0: What about Swanson?
1: Swanson was the East Bay equivalent okay. of McCune. They were not quite as big and they were even less enthusiastic about doing rock and roll shows than McKeon. Okay.
0: What was, well, what was what was Swanson's main main bread and butter then at that time type, type of work?
1: Uh, events at the Oakland Coliseum. They had the uh, in-house contract for the uh, Oakland city auditorium. Uh they you know, like at the Oakland Coliseum, they'd be they'd do like the ice follies, hmm. political conventions, you know. Gotcha. The only rock band that ever dealt with Swanson extensively was Creedence Clearwater Revival, kind of in the early, you know, earlier days. Gotcha. There was also a spin-off of McCune Sound, uh, because Harry Sr. just hated rock and roll. And I think it was his son-in-law, a guy named Joe Corcoran. And they basically sold Joe Corcoran some gear. And briefly there was Corcoran sound and they were basically McCune's gear, but more rock and roll fave friendly. Gotcha. And it wasn't too long before people saw a need and started trying to fill it. And that's when uh, Jerry Pfeffer, who's working at a hi-fi stereo store, in West Portal, starts collecting gear and doing gigs.
0: Mm. So, and then just to talk about some other companies around the time. So, you said you had done a little bit of you know pre coming out west. You've done a little bit of touring Midwest. Did you did you know of Stanall at all? I mean, because they they were around uh, at that time, um, or had you seen? We hand-
1: played. We played um, the band I was working with played a homecoming dance. I'm pretty sure it was Kearney, Nebraska. (laughs) And there was a PA there. And it was this very nicely repackaged, Altec drivers, Mm -hmm. but packaged in a cabinet that could mount on a pipe stand. And they had the mixer in a rack and they had uh, Hubble connectors on the back of the cabinet so you didn't have to Use the screw terminals to hook up your speakers every time you did.
2: Right.
1: In other words, already then Stan Miller had figured out sounding good is one thing, but being able to set it up and tear it down quickly, it, you know, time is money.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And you package the stuff so it doesn't fall apart on the road, which means you build your cabinets and then you coat them with fiberglass. <laughs> But that was my first encounter with a Stannell sound system, and my last for quite a while. But I was impressed.
0: So that was a picture of the scene at that time, so 1970 years. So where, where, where was your mindset at, you, um, again? What, what, what I, was was still
1: think, I was still thinking about going back to college. But, you know, as the 60s turned into the 70s, it started looking like a gig, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. a job. And I had an affordable apartment. And when the family dog closed, about the same time the family dog closed, I got into some legal trouble with the uh, federal government. (laughs)
0: Okay.
1: Uh, I was um, a conscientious objector. I had done alternative service work, but I hadn't crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's. And when they stopped drafting people, you don't have to include this, you don't want to. The the draft boards were volunteer dollar a year men, but every draft board had a professional civil service secretary. And when they stopped actually drafting people, the secretary of my small town Colorado draft board figured out one way to prolong her employment would be to go through all the files with a fine-tooth comb, and if anyone was in violation of the law, to send that to the grand jury in Denver. So I was actually convicted um, of failing to keep my draft board informed of an address at all times at which I may receive mail. Wow. So that took a couple of months, and when I came back, the family dog was on its last legs. But. Bob Cohen, who owned the sound equipment, was running a starting a sound rental company, and it had the same name as the company he, you know, the business trademark he had founded when he was doing that White Organ. It's called Lumiere Productions, and they operated out of a warehouse south of Market in San Francisco, and we would go out and we would do sound at colleges, high schools, you know, outdoor you know, rock festivals at junior colleges. Mm-hmm. And there was a high school in San Ramon, California at that time. And do you remember uh, junior achievement? Is that anything ever in a school you had?
0: Um, no.
1: Okay. It was a course. It was a class. And what the class consisted of was your class would start a company and you would make a product, or you would oh, okay. perform a Okay. The Junior Achievement Class at San Ramon High School produced rock concerts. And they booked the people who, because San Ramon, it was far enough out in the burbs the Bill Graham didn't object, and so they were booking, like, Elvin Bishop, Boz Skaggs, nice. a lot of the same bands that were playing at Fillmore, to play in their high school all-purpose room. And so they would hire Bob Cohen Sound Company to do it. And so I was doing that for a long time. And Bob Cohen and Charlie Button, B-U-T-T-E-N, you know, we're working together, both electronic nerds. Um, and I was doing some maintenance on the bench one day at the warehouse and Bob and Charlie are sitting on the floor with a big roll of butcher paper. Drawing schematics. Because in those days, if you wanted a production intercom, mm-hmm. you would rent one from McCune. And they were all basically just telephone headsets, all driven by a common amplifier. And there's no way to turn the crystal mics on and off. So if you put more than a couple of those in a high volume environment, it's just picking up background noise, nobody can hear anything. Right. So the concept that Charlie and Bob had was each microphone, each headset would have its own amplifier and mic preamp and would all be phantom powered over an XLR cable from a central power supply. The headsets would have differential microphones and there would be a mic on off switch and a call switch on each belt pack now that sounds absolutely common now <laughs> but it did not exist in 1970 right and so um very quickly once clearcom went into production and the word got out the intercom company kind of swamped the sound company and yeah you know, in other words, it was making money, and the sound company was... Sure. Okay. So at that point, I'm approached by Diane Sward at Fillmore Management, which was the management company that Bill Graham had created. At one point, there was a Bill Graham empire. He had a management company, he had a booking agency, and he had the you know, Bill Graham Presents that presented right. the concerts. Fillmore Management handled a bunch of bands. Uh, For a while, Santana, Taj Mahal, Buzz Skaggs, some rock bands you may have never heard of, like Aum. Oh, yeah, Tower of Power. Yeah. And he had a record label, too. Jeez. There was Fillmore Records and, uh, God, I forgot what the other. There were two labels. One of the acts on that label and his management company was a folk rock band called Lamb. Not to be confused with the Christian rock band Current. (laughs) <laughs> and they were mutating from being a folk duo into a full band. And they wanted a sound guy and a tour manager. And Bert Ham became the tour manager. I became the sound man. And we were both kind of the backline text. And they threw us out on the road in uh, 72 or 73. I forget which. And we did a East Coast tour where we were booked for like five nights at a club called my father's place in Roslyn out on long Island. Hmm. And we played the first three nights by ourselves, but we're opening for a local band, you know, popular local act on the weekend. So I come in on Friday and there's a baby grand piano in the middle of the stage and they're not going to move it. So I have to adjust my setup. It was Billy Joel. Good grief. Who was a big name already on Long Island because he had been in a very popular band there. And this is when he was starting his solo career. And this was, you know, Lamb was more like, you know, Fairport Convention with Sandy Denny than it was rock bands. But we opened at the bottom line for Taj Mahal for a week. Uh, You know, but. We got some last minute gigs that were just totally inappropriate for us. But because we were managed by Bill Graham, you know, we got thrown on these shows. We got hired, we were the support act for Humble Pie hmm. at the Fabulous Forum in LA. Now, there's two reasons that gig is memorable for me. Actually, three. One, Humble pie was all set up when we got there and they were waiting for Steve Marriott to show up so they could sound check. Steve Marriott never showed up. So it's 10 minutes before the doors open and they say, Oh, okay, you can sound check. So we're frantically setting up and it's door time. Bill Graham's saying, what's going on? I say, uh, Bill, Basically, we got screwed out of a sound check, and I have five minutes. And Bill looks at me straight at me and says, You got five minutes and not one second more. <laughs> so I did the five-minute sound check, and somehow we survived. But that wasn't the weirdest one. The weirdest one was Neil Young was playing at the Oakland Coliseum Arena. And this opening act was supposed to be Linda Ronstadt. And Linda got laryngitis and had to cancel the day before the gig. And we're local and we're managed by Bill Graham. And I get a phone call at home saying, hello Lee. Yeah, this is Bill. Uh, How soon can you have Lamb's equipment at the Oakland Coliseum? Say, uh, if I can reach David Perper, who was the drummer in the band, uh, Two hours, says, okay, go to the loading dock. We go to our <laughs> rehearsal space. Now, bear in mind, this is a folk rock band. Every bit of backline we own, need, including the drums, will fit in David Purper's Buick station wagon. <laughs> the grand piano will be provided. You know, you used to an acoustic piano.
0: Sure. Uh,
1: so, David Perper and I show up at the loading dock at the Oakland Coliseum, and there are five semis, and we're pulling up in a Buick Station Wagon. <laughs> and the guy at the docks, yeah, you know, just convinced that we're we're just scamming our way into the gig. You know? Yeah, of course. Uh, and you know, never mind, no cell phones in those days. And I'm trying to figure out, you know. Well, where's the nearest pay phone? So I leave David in the station wagon, and I walk all the way from the loading dock around to the ticket office, hoping that I will see someone from Bill Graham Presents there. Luckily, I did. They called Bill. Bill called the dock. We got to load in
0: so were they just asking for your backline or were you actually trying to get PA? No, they didn't.
1: They didn't believe we were the opening act. (laughs) (laughs) Because what credible band playing an arena show is showing up in a station wagon? Right. Right. (laughs) And I have to this day, that this was the heart of gold tour. I have met people to this day that thought Barbara Moritz, our singer was Linda (laughs) Ronstadt.
0: Now would that be, was Northwest doing the sound for that at the time? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah I figured so much yeah. with with being uh, Neil Young so. Yeah, um,
1: and they had the the Northwest double 15 bottoms as sidefills with
0: yeah, and and W2s huge, I think they're called.
1: Yeah, and the, and then the huge potato masher JBL lens on top of the sidefill. Yeah, you know, it's like a conical horn with this lens mm-hmm. on it that looked like you know discs with holes poked in it and the w-2s yeah the 212s and the potato masher horn in the middle
0: was was bob stern there uh on that tour if he was
1: i did not uh, my interaction was basically i was dropped in front of right this stack of jbl rack mount mixers
0: <laughs> okay
1: so well, si- side stage no, I was out in the audience.
0: Okay, all right, well, That's good at least.
1: <laughs> and one of Bob's guys was gracious enough. He said, basically, all we need in the monitors is Barbara's vocal and the piano. And he said, you won't need the piano. <laughs> Reason being, Jack Nietzsche was the piano player on that tour. Uh, do you know what a countryman piano pickup is? Yeah. Okay. The nine-foot Steinway was fitted with a Countryman piano pickup, and feeding a st- one of Carl Countryman's prototype, long before anyone else was trying it. Class D, thousand watt per channel power amps, driving two cabinets, each of which contained thirty-two four and a half inch speakers, like in a Bose cabinet, Bose mm. speaker. One of them was directly next to Jack Nietzsche's right ear. And the other one was on a riser behind the piano facing the rest of the band. Our pianist sat down and hit a chord and he said, it almost knocked his head off. (laughs) So we didn't need the piano and the other monitors at all.
0: Now, when you were, um, you were running with, um, Uh, with the lamb and stuff on the East coast, were were you guys carrying any PA or, or were you using whatever was local with you at each, each of the stuff using whatever
1: was local at the venues, but we were carrying a a pair of monitors from Barbara. Uh, It was like, I had a, you know, a road case and it was like two cabinets were rectangles with one, one, a corner cut off. And each of those had a a JBL D one thirty and a bullet tweeter in it. And I had a ridiculously heavy case with a Macintosh 275 in it to drive them. And I would just kludge that into whatever PA we were provided with.
0: So at, at this point, we, we were talking so much about like rack mount mixers. Um, mm-hmm. what, at what point did you actually, what was the first actual console uh, that you worked on?
1: The first actual console that mod, modified Altec broadcast console that Bob Cohen oh, used to use like to record the at the Avalon. I was, he was using that for recording, but when we moved to the Family Dog on the Great Highway, that became the PA console. But hmm. Chet Helms had a concept. chet Well, Chet had a lot of concepts. There, at the Family Dog on the Great Highway initially, there was a stage at each end of the room. The concept was, you know,
0: that continuous music, right? Continuous
1: music. Unfortunately, we had <laughs> two sta- we had two stages and two speaker systems, two snakes and one console. <laughs> I,
0: I'm, I'm remembering now that you the, uh, you know you and I obviously had a, a pre-call to this and you, you briefly told me about this. So yes, keep keep, keep going.
1: So the chat's fixed for this is he had what he called the house troop. And it was basically a circle of conga drummers and some dancers that would just plots themselves in the middle of the dance floor and cover until I could get the patch ready and got a high sign from the band. They were ready.
0: And what was the, uh, did you mention, was that the, is that
1: the same, uh, that same Altec console?
0: Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Now, did did Bob actually make at a certain – I thought I read word? Did he start making any of his own consoles at a certain point?
1: We only made one console, and it was being custom-built for Dave Mason, who wanted to have his own console. Uh, Bob bought a bunch of Stevenson interface consoles and modified them uh built did one for the doobie brothers did you know but the destiny console was destiny was the name of dave mason's brief cell phone record label was in many ways ahead of its time it was like you had the fader bank and like the queer foldy console mm-hmm. the eQ and ox stands went up at an angle from that so it was actually very shallow you know, 100-millimeter faders and then a vertical section that held the EQs and auxiliary sends. Of course, in those days, six auxiliary sends was considered luxurious. Yeah, sure. And the EQ section was built in such a way that you could either have just a bog-standard bass treble that Bob built, or you could put, if you had the money, a Spectrosonics EQ module or an API 550 in it. Well, this was all being funded by Dave Mason and his management, and they ran out of money. So I have no idea where that console ever went. Uh, during the same time, McCune was making their own consoles. Jerry Pfeffer was making his own consoles.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Because, well, especially monitored consoles.
0: Yeah, I there saw were no monitors. Yeah, I saw a picture of Jerry Pfeffer, one. Um, uh, Chester yeah i i I spoke briefly to jerry you know and i'll have him on an upcoming episode but I, I saw a picture of it i mean it's a beautiful look i mean it looks like a gamble almost i mean the thing looks looks immaculate i can't wait to learn more about it
1: well when you build it yourself you, you want to make it look good and impressive now mccune for a while had these little eight by four monitored consoles i don't know how many of them they ever actually made because you know even then limited market, but for somebody like, you know, Tony Bennett in the seventies, that's all they needed
2: Mm -hmm.
1: for, you know, for monitors. So anyway, Lamb, uh, Lamb's lead singer had to have a node operation, which meant she couldn't sing for quite some time. Bill Graham kept the whole band on retainer. A modest retainer, I might say, but it's still enough to live on. And the band Minus Barbara started playing in a bar on Union Street under the name Fat Max and the Casuals. By the way, uh the guitarist and lamb played with Van Morrison for eight years. Hmm. The bassist became one of the mystic knights of the Oingo Boingo. Uh you know, I mean, the piano player became the Pointer Sisters the musical director. So anyway, they all they all did well. All um, right. But so I'm at a Fat Max gig. And Tom Salisbury, the piano player, tells me, hey, uh, I'm playing Monday nights at this new jazz club in the city. And the sound sucks. We're getting paid fifteen dollars each and two beers. I'll split it with you if you come in on Monday and do the sound. <laughs> and this was a an 18-piece, you know, class configuration, 18-piece big jazz band that had been renting a room at the Union Hall to rehearse on Monday nights because these were the guys who played in all the touring Broadway shows and at the Circle Star Theater backing, like, you know, the Frank Sinatra type acts. And on Mondays, they would get together to play jazz and play their own tunes and their own arrangements. When they opened the Great American Music Hall, one of them approached the club saying, hey, you know, the Thad Jones-Mel Lewis band plays every Monday night at, you know, the Village Vanguard, and we were thinking we'd like to try to get something like that starting. So they got a waiver from the union, allowing them to work for less than union scale, provided Mm -hmm. There was no admission charged and no recordings were made. And so I went down every Monday night for $7.50 and a beer (laughs) for several weeks. And very shortly thereafter, one of the owners of the club comes to me and says, "Uh, we kind of like what you're doing with the sound here. Uh, We've got Bill Evans coming in for a week. Uh, Are you interested? I said yes and that was 1973 and I was still doing sound there in
2: 2019
1: Wow I mean for many years I was the only sound tech and then there were two of us and then there were more than two of us because I started going out of town periodically with that corporate party band I talked about mm-hmm. and uh, and then when Swim's the Slim's partnership bought the Great American Music Hall in 2001. Shortly thereafter, the general manager said, we want you to oversee the sound staff for both clubs. So I kind of became an administrator as much as a sound guy.
0: Gotcha. So before we dig too much more into the Great American Music Hall, I want to thing about the Bill Graham thing. So didn't so Bob Cohen had a falling out with Bill Graham, right?
1: No, uh, Bob Cohen had a falling out with uh, uh, Chet Helms.
0: Oh, okay. So I thought there was, in, in reading Bob Cohen, uh, with the whole um, uh, Fillmore oh. and Avalon thing. That- oh,
1: no. That, that, that goes all the way back to when Family Dog Productions and Bill Graham were alternating weekends at the Fillmore. Gotcha. Chet and Bob definitely fell out with Bill Graham. Chet and Bill made up. I'm not sure Bob ever did. But so Chet, and,
0: and Chet was Bob Cohen's partner.
1: Correct. But they dissolved the partnership when the Avalon ballroom closed. So when Bob Cohen put the sound system in the Avalon ballroom, it was as an, as a contractor.
0: Gotcha. It
1: was no longer a partner. When the partnership broke up, remember those posters I told you I brought back from Denver.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: well, When the family dog partnership of Chet Helms and Bob Cohen broke up, part of the settlement was they were going to sell a third of the back stock of posters to a guy named Benny Friedman who ran a store in North Beach called The Poster Mat. And then Bob and Chet each got one third of the remaining posters. So one of the first tasks I had when I went to work directly for Bob Cohen was to take these big stacks of Avalon ballroom posters from a particular concert and go one for Benny, one for Bob, one for Chad, <laughs> one for Benny. Yeah. Because they had, you know, they had printed hundreds more posters than they distributed. And by 1972, those posters were valuable. Now they're even more valuable. If I had personally just kept those posters I brought back from Denver I would have a nice retirement fund.
0: Wow. I didn't realize that the posters were that, were that valuable. That's crazy. Uh,
1: well, the first printings, a lot of them have been reprinted because sure. people like, but those, you know, those first printing ones, like uh, the, uh, the first printing full size family dog, Denver grand opening posters, like worth, you know, five figures. Wow. In good condition. Sure. Okay. But who knew? That's why I have no picture photographs of myself in that <laughs> era. We didn't have cameras then either. Sure.
0: So here we are, nineteen seventy three. Your great, great American music hall. Was there a point where you finally knew, hey, yep, I'm definitely oh, that's doing this? Like, definitely.
1: This. It was. It was sometime between seventy three and seventy five. I realized this is what I'm doing for a living.
0: And. and I, what in, you didn't have like an electrical background and stuff. So were you trying to pick some of it up from Bob? I mean, what oh, was, was the electrical side intriguing you? What was, what was driving I, you the most through that time?
1: I have never been the most, you know, knowing tech. I'm a good end user and I know enough about electronics and theory. You know, I can fix things I can see, which is why I'm no good with uh, surface mount technology. But I can, you know, an old Fender guitar amp, point-to-point wiring, I can suss that out. I picked that up from Bob before that, a man in Denver named Jeff Manville, who was like a repair tech at one of the, uh, you know, hi-fi stores there. Uh, I learned a lot about acoustics and engineering from Fred Gutero, And I read a lot yeah and there were no you know in the 70s there were no schools right yeah you know, there was no full sale there was no you know college of recordings arts and sciences there was you basically hung around until you figured it out
0: yeah how about um just because we're talking about sound companies uh you know taika brady started in 68 uh i know they were oh. southern california um did you run into them at all through that scene?
1: When we'd go south, you know, uh, you know, when Lamb would go south, or uh, I briefly worked with the post Janice Joplin, Big Brother in the Holding Company, we'd encounter that. My even briefer term with Quicksilver Messenger Service, they played a uh, week at the Whiskey a Go Go, and Tycho Bray had the installed system there at that time. But and you know, I mostly saw the cabinets come in with other people when they would come to like uh, uh, the Great American Music Hall,
0: gotcha. even
1: though some, you know people would bring in Tycho Bray cabinets as keyboard monitors. Okay. But I was aware of them, and I did actually buy a Tycho Bray blueboard for the Great American Music Hall, and we outgrew it pretty quickly.
0: Wow. All right, well, all right. Well, let's get in the Great American Music Hall. So um, what kind of venue was it? Um, was there gear in at the time? What types of shows were happening in there at the time when you came in?
1: When I first walked in there,
0: it was going to be a jazz
1: club because the principal owners were two former college classmates who had always fantasized about running their own jazz club and just purely coincidentally found each other both in San Francisco at the same time one of the partners bought the sound equipment without knowing anything. So when I first walked in there, the sound system consisted of two Electro-Voice Sentry 4 loudspeakers, you know, basically big studio monitors, mm-hmm. two 12s and a folded horn, you know, ra- radial diffraction horn, EV tweeter, and a low impedance input, Sure vocal master head. <laughs> Side of stage. So I started. Oh, and three omnidirectional microphones
0: and two cardioids. And what, what, what uh, like the, what was the rough size of the venue or capacity? Oh, uh, uh,
1: the well, the Great American Music Hall, fully seated, holds about four hundred and seventy-five people. With with no furniture in it for 21st century rock and roll configuration, they put six fifty in there. Okay. It's a Baroque, beautiful building with a balcony around three sides facing the stage. It had been uh, originally a gentleman's club in the early 20th century. Gotcha. And it is uh, still a Baroque magnificence. But I put them on the upgrade path with the PA very quickly. First thing I did is I bought a snake (laughs) (laughs) so I could get out.
0: So a a stock built snake, uh, snake existed at the time?
1: Warehouse Sound Company, which later became somehow morphed into Northwest Sound, even though Warehouse Sound was in San Luis Obispo. Their double 15 base cabinets and their snakes were constructed by the company that would eventually become Northwest Sound. So, still,
0: so, so was Bob Stern at Warehouse Sound then, or was that?
1: No, I think Bob Stern was at Northwest, and this hi-fi company in San Luis Obispo wanted to get into pro sound, and they were looking around for sources that weren't Altec, and somehow they found Bob Stern. Or, yeah, you know, or. The other partners at Northwest Sound, because the Warehouse Sound Company snake was absolutely identical to the snake Northwest was using at the time. It was nineteen pair Belden, Belden cable, sixteen mic ends, three returns, left, right, monitor. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And I, I I assume no was there any multi pin of any type or was it just like fan to box or uh,
1: this the one I had had a fan disconnect that was you know an optional extra cost extra gotcha so the one I have is a hundred foot box to multi pin and then a fan out from there
0: and no no split right just direct no split yeah. no split.
1: The first recordings of the great American, you know, live recordings of the great American musical used the old uh, gaff tape and foam split.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> two microphones taped together.
0: Now, why, why wouldn't they, uh, maybe this wasn't a concept. Um, why wouldn't you just made some, some XLRY cables as opposed to doing the two microphones?
1: Uh, because the recording guys wanted to use different microphones than yeah, the PA true. guys.
0: Okay. okay.
1: I I used Y chords a lot, you know, when I recorded, but you got to remember, these are people, I would call them semi-pro recordists coming in to record their favorite jazz band.
2: Hmm.
1: Yeah, a couple of clicks above the tapers that would become a plague later. Sure.
0: Uh, So what was the, um, you you have that 16 channel Snig. What was the, what was the console you had behind that?
1: Well, uh, from the vocal master, we went to a Shure SR-101, which was their rack mount console, you know, with eight inputs. Mm -hmm. Then it was a Yamaha PM-700. 700.
0: 700. Uh, Oh no, in
1: between, I'm sorry. After the Sure, it was a Soundcraft Model 1S. That's the one that was built into its own aluminum road case. 16 inputs, three outs. And I immediately had to put uh, filtered capacitors on all of the mic inputs because uh, we had a a lot more radio frequency interference than they might have had in the United
3: Kingdom at the time. And have I lost
0: you? No, no, I'm, I'm here. Sorry. Okay. I'm okay. okay. I, yeah.
1: there you go. <laughs> SR-101, Soundcraft 1S. Then the Yamaha PM700 to get Two monitor outputs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the P- I had not heard of a PM seven hundred, so that was that's a new that's a new name. Yeah,
1: me. it's contemporary with the PM one thousand. It was smaller. It was twelve inputs, not sixteen, and fewer bells and whistles. There to- was also a PM four hundred and thirty, which was even smaller yet. But they were still built into those wood rosewood enclosures and they still weighed a lot. Right. And then uh we went to uh from that we went to a Yamaha 1516.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And from the 1516, we went to uh Soundcraft Venue, Soundcraft K3, K2 rather, and uh Place that with the uh, m seven, and then the m seven moved to monitor land when we got the uh, avid venue. actually it was still DigiDesign. design. digit design profiled venue. Right. Uh, the music hall actually did the beta testing on these uh, DigiDesign design venue. They had this Frankenstein one built with stock chassis and they put it in one of the story, you know, one of the storerooms downstairs and we split all the channels and they would dry mix shows downstairs. Gotcha. Just to try to make it break. Yeah. And when it broke, fixed, Yeah.
0: So uh, you mentioned, you mentioned somewhere in there you, you, you had, you had bought the uh, Takerberry blue board.
1: Yeah. It didn't last very long for two reasons. One, um, we suddenly needed more than two monitor mixes. And I don't know if you remember the blue board, uh, the way the monitors were configured is it was one stereo bus.
0: Right. It was kind of like a, it was like a, it was almost like a pan, right? You would kind of like, right. pan, right.
1: Right. Yeah. And the normal thing with Boss van, for example, The left output was the vocal mix and the right output was the horn section mix. But that isn't what ultimately made it unusable at the music hall. Jim Gamble designed it to be you couldn't overload the front end. No matter, you know, leather lung lead singers singing into a hot microphone would not overload those mic inputs under any circumstances. And then he made up the game later. Well, the music hall, from day one, we were getting RF interference in the woo board. If you plugged in the headphone, set of headphones, somehow the headphone cord was an antenna. It wasn't until much later that we discovered that someone in the apartment building next door had built himself a... 75-watt CB radio. <laughs> he was talking to good buddies all the way up, and what we were picking up was his sideband noise. Yeah, that's...
0: uh it's funny my uh my, my dad tells me a story um he was big into like cb and ham radio and stuff like that and uh he had a, a, a overpowered amplifier in his car um and him and his buddies would drive around uh town um and they would purposely there was this church that they could pull up outside oh, of it, yeah. and, and he would key up his radio and he, he could come right through their system and he would just mess with them uh or like uh he said um they would go to, like the mall parking lots where they're like racing rc cars and he would mm-hmm. sit there and wait until their RC car is about ready to go into a turn he'd key up the microphone so it would lock it on the path to go straight and they couldn't they couldn't couldn't Uh, turn the (laughs) car
1: no but what we would do is we'd be doing these sensitive young singer songwriter you know shows because the music hall was mostly a jazz folk comedy venue really did not become mostly a rock and roll venue until fairly late there were exceptions like the Jerry Garcia, Merle Saunders band would play there on a regular basis. When Van Morrison lived in Marin County, just across the bridge here, he would literally call on less than a week's notice. And they'd throw him in there on a Tuesday and Wednesday. And of course, being Van Morrison in a room that size, they'd sell it out. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we just, we'd just we be getting these CB good buddy messages right in the middle of the show. <laughs> And, uh, Jim just didn't want to deal with it. He said, yeah, they made me, they made me build those blueboards to a price, not to quality. That's why <laughs> I left. Yeah.
0: That's, that sounds, uh, that sounds accurate. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah well, you know, the directive, you know, the blackboards were yep. top, you know, really well built mm-hmm. and the blueboards were well built too. But in terms of components, they told Jim the entire cost metalwork labor has to be $5,000 or less per board.
0: Which now, still still at the time was still a, a lot of money, yeah. but
1: then not that much later, the first gamble HC cost how much? I
3: don't when know. he
1: started his own company. Uh, I've got the brochure around here somewhere. It was like uh, the 40 channel house console was $65,000. <laughs> And then when you got to the EX, it was six figures. Right. And uh, Jerry Pfeffer, when he bought his first Gamble console, he said, I just spent more money for a console than I spent for my first house. <laughs> now, bear in mind, his first house was sure. in the burbs in a in a tract, you know.
0: Right. How about, how, about, uh, how about speaker upgrades through the years? Uh, oh, the uh,
1: okay. When it was still a jazz club, we had a brief endorsement deal with Bose. So I had like a whole bunch of Bose 800s, which up to their thermal limit worked just fine. And then there was a, a local speaker designer named Mark Wayne who had a company called Harbinger. Not to be confused with the current Guitar Center in-house brand. And Mark was quite the whiz kid. And he had reverse engineered a clips less Scala and built something in that same form factor, but instead of the Klipsch components, it was an 18-inch Serlin Vega woofer, a two-inch JBL 2440, and a one-inch JBL 2410. And we had those then we added subs to those. And then he designed his, what they called the cat eye speakers, which were horn loaded 15s in a, uh, actually clips would eventually call this a tractix horn. But it was, yeah, definitely there was more horn loading than there was an Altec cabinet, but the high frequency horns remained the same. So we ran those for a long time. And then uh, the first real flown system they had was a JBL Array Series, 4892s, 4894s, that. And uh, that's when they were starting to become more and more of a rock and roll venue. We found that out very quickly when those JBL 4893 double 14 subwoofers were no longer subby enough.
0: You said double 14.
1: Yeah. The subwoofer, the woofer that went with the array series was the same size as the 4893, 4894, but no horn. And it had a longer, you know, two longer
0: throw 14s. I've never heard of a 14 inch speaker.
1: (laughs) Oh, well the, the array series is all 14 inch speakers. JBL had a frame from an, uh, 60s hi-fi speaker they had produced and they put a more high-tech magnet on it and developed a new cone and it's called the pro 14 and they did that because it had almost as much low end as a 15 but it crossed over to the vocal range in the horn much friendlier than a 15. They're actually very nice sounding drivers even I'll, now.
0: I'll, I'll have to ask uh, Mark Gander and Ken Lopez more about that when I... Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, Mark
1: <laughs> M- and also Shadoan. Uh, uh, they, for a while, had um, monitors. Um, they made f- carbon fiber floor monitors. And they used those woofers in those.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, you
1: know, Sound Image had... Uh, the pro- only problem with those carbon fiber monitors and the neodymium drivers is they were so light, they would literally dance across a carpeted stage.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so they had to put like rubber strips on the bottom of them to keep them from moving.
0: So you had some pretty iconic shows through the year happen at Greater McMuse Hall. You had- oh, and
1: then after the Array Series is when we got the L so, uh, you know, oh, God, go. Having a moment, Lark's. Not works. Oh, no, the, the,
0: uh, the, uh, the arcs, the, um, yeah, we
1: don't have the arcs. We have the, Oh God, I'm having a moment. <laughs> it'll come to it. It's their medium sized line array uh, with the variable veins, you know, it can change right. the directivity. Okay. Okay. Well, it'll come to me. But, oh yeah. The music hall had some great shows.
0: Um, specifically. So like, uh, you mentioned, so Duke Ellington's last, uh, San Francisco performances were right. there.
1: Right. Because they were trying to establish themselves as a jazz club, they contacted Duke Ellington's agent and he said, well, we will only, we can only come to the Bay Area if you buy five nights. And they had found out early on that the room was too big. You know, your typical jazz club in those days was 200 seats mm-hmm. and they would book somebody to play from Tuesday through Sunday, two or three shows a night. Well, they found out very quickly that wasn't going to work in the room that held more than twice that. Like they'd make money on weekends and lose money during the week. But to get Duke Ellington, they had to book him for five nights. So what they did is they put, put him on one night at the Marin Civic Center, one night at the Oakland Auditorium, and then they did the weekend at the music hall And, of course, they lost money on the concerts, made money in the club. Duke Ellington had such a good time that he said he wanted to come back and just play the club a a year later. Unfortunately, he died
3: Mm.
1: before he could do that. But at that time, Duke couldn't do stairs, so they turned the head waiter's office into a dressing room for Duke Ellington. And the last time I saw that, was there that was in 1973 or 74 a little shaky there i think 73 the sign that they had made for his dressing room door was still there it was very faded but they never took it down wow and then um i mentioned the robin williams hbo specials robin had played the music hall many times starting as an opening act Headliner. He was part of. Um, if you ever watch Mark and Mindy, they, occasionally as guests, they'd have Rick and Ruby. Well, Rick and Ruby did a show every year called The Last Prom. It was a comedy send up of The Last Waltz. Good. And Robin would participate in that as well. One year he was a Russian uh, exchange student. <laughs> anyway, but. He wanted to tape his first HBO special at the Music Hall. And then he taped the follow-up at the Music Hall. But Robin's big break that got him, Mork and Mindy, was a show that was supposed to be a summer replacement for the Dean Martin Comedy Hour. And it was called The Great American Laugh-Off and it was produced by the same guy who had produced Waffin, but it was just a bunch of stand-up comedians. They were all supposed to do ten minutes. Robin was on for ten minutes, and the place was just he's tearing the place up. And so the, I'm on the headset, and the director the for manager says, "You want me to give him the cut sign says, no, let him go. We can use the laughs for someone else. He's so <laughs> impressed. he's so impressed the producers that they immediately signed him and eventually became Mark and Mindy because they got him a guest shot on Happy Days as Mork. And that got a good enough response. And Mork and Mindy is really what started him into major stardom. But the HBO specials, he did two. And then Bobcat Goldthwaite wanted to do his HBO special there. And he was very adamant that the staging and the lighting be exactly the same as it was <laughs> for Robert <laughs> Ch- <laughs>
0: So, uh, so through the years, uh, especially early on, um, how much were you mixing artists that came through versus? Almost
1: exclusively, I mixed them. Very few acts came through with their own own mixers in those days. Especially, you know, the jazz acts. Most of the, you know, uh, not traditional jazz, because that implies New Orleans style. Most of the touring jazz bands of the 60s, 70s, in, well into the 80s, did not travel with sound people.
0: And and did you start, you know, doing close-miking? Are you doing, like, further area-miking? Like, did it depend, depend on the band? What was- It depended on the band,
1: uh, you know. Uh, you do uh, Billy Cobham's band. You're close-miking everything. And there's a lot of close, a lot of drums to close-mic. Uh, with uh, somebody like Joe Pass, you mic the guitar amp. Give him a mic to talk into you put three mics maximum on the drum set and you might not use them in the PA at all. You learn what to leave out. Yeah. And then on the opposite, you know, you have a singer like Morgana King who had just discovered monitors. And as soon as she discovered monitors, they had to be really loud And they had to be really wet because she loved her reverb. And I knew she was finally happy when her drummer came to me during a break and said, Morgana's monitors are perfect. When I'm playing with brushes, I can't hear my own snare drum. Hmm.
0: Because
1: they were screaming.
0: So, so that you brought up reverb as one of the things I was going to ask. So you came into the American Music Hall 73 on, on a short vocal master. Uh, so at what point were you? did you actually have uh, reverb and delay? Anything before then or was it after we, you got into that venue?
1: Pretty, uh, most of the LAM tours, if there wasn't a reverb in the mixer or the system, you know, uh, I just didn't use it. I'm still pretty sparse using effects, actually, but that's just a taste thing. Um, the at the music hall, I bought the first external reverb for them when we booked the Kronos Quartet, and they were doing George Crumb's Black Angels, in which the score specifies gobs of reverb <laughs> at certain points in the score, and you turn it on and turn it off, and you're sitting there with the you know with a with a, a conductor's score, and there's marks where the reverb comes on. Anyway, so I bought a Master Room Spring Reverb, which was a, you know, a rack mat unit that had three different springs in it. You could mix between them. You could mix it hot. It was a really nice unit, and I only recently sold it to someone who really needed it more than I do. Hmm. Uh, It's the same reverb that Mark Knopfler used on his first three albums for his guitar. But then I got an MXR digital delay and an Effectron. I mean, we're we're talking, we're not rocking the 60s. And then uh, Yamaha Rev 7. We kind of skipped over the SPX-90, had SPX-900s. And at that point, the bands that really wanted specific effects started bringing them.
0: Right. Did Did you guys have to, um, if and when you had to separate any gear? Was there a particular partner? Was it still McCune, or was there anyone else that you were kind of? Uh,
1: we uh, usually we deal with uh, Jerry Pfeffer whenever okay. possible. I mean, he was before the Slims takeover. He was the uh, sound source of choice for any supplements. Like for example, when. Motorhead played at the music hall. <laughs> we
0: rented strange. up. That seems, like a, that seems like a strange fit for the uh, for the venue. Oh, it
1: was. It was. We rented up bunch of stuff from Jerry. I mean, you know, and you know, you know, complete with the Lemmy-approved stupid large monitors. And I'm there, and the tour manager is in the face of the venue manager saying. If Levy walks in and sees this, he'll be very upset. This is totally inadequate. And standing behind him is the band's touring sound guy. And he's making the, no, oh, it's fine. It's <laughs> move. But I did take a picture of, uh, oh, we got in a, uh, a PM4000 for that gig. Because we couldn't get an XL4. That was acceptable. You know, anyway, so... I took a picture of the meter bridge of the uh, PM 4000 during uh-huh. that gig and it's like everything's pinned.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's a Christmas tree, it's all lit. <laughs>
1: oh yeah. We, you know, it wasn't until they put in an apartment house across the street and they were booking a lot of rock shows that we got many complaints. But we were getting noise complaints from the apartment house two blocks down during the motorhead gig. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And I just want—I want to clarify for you know people who listen and don't know. So Jerry Pfeiffer, um, uh, Sound on Stage is the name of right. his company. So I just for people who may not know his name, that's and then and I've been talking to him, and I'll, I'll, I'll have an episode with him soon, so people learn more about him and Sound on Stage if they don't know. One of the
1: name. finest regional sound companies, and I'm not just saying that because they're in my region and they have employed me from time to time. They're really good.
0: So let's touch on some of your other work. Um, you, you know, you some various other runs. You said you, you did some system tech work in front of house for Sound On Stage. You've done some stuff for uh, Yoshi's Jazz Spot. Um, maybe touch on some, you know some of your other work outside of you know Great American Music Hall. You spent oh, shoot pretty much seventy three almost to what you know nineteen right? So <laughs> nineteen
1: yeah. Until uh, until we were shut down, I think I'm still employed there. But I don't know until they reopen. <laughs> because when they reopen, they're not going to have two clubs anymore because they closed slims. So I will, you know, they probably won't need me to supervise a sound staff of 12 to 14 people. Right. So we'll see. Yeah, that's still wide open. Um the longest running relationships other than the music hall have been the Stanford Jazz Workshop. Hmm which puts on a jazz festival every summer at Stanford University. It's not run by the university. Stanford Jazz Workshop is a separate entity that puts on basically band camps for high school age kids for two weeks. And then the third week, a band camp for adults. And the high school kids who are good enough to play with those adults, And the faculty are world-class jazz musicians, many of them very famous, and they do concerts at night. It is unusual as a jazz festival in that most jazz festivals put on 20 or 30 bands in three days. The Stanford Jazz Festival is one band a night for 34 to 40 shows spread out over seven weeks. Oh, wow. So I've been doing that full-time by myself as the only A1 since 2001. I split duties with Jeff Cressman between 1998 and 2000. Jeff is a phenomenally good sound man and recording engineer, but he's an even better trombone player. Hmm. So he was the trombone player in uh, Santana's touring band. And that's why he stopped doing the, you know, the Stanford gig in 2001. The other association is Anthony Brown's Asian American Orchestra, which is a small to medium big jazz band that incorporates traditional instruments from China, Persia, Japan. And Anthony does re-orchestrations. you know re-orchestrations. We did, for example, uh, one year we did Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, but all the piano parts were played by the Yang Chin, which is a Chinese hammered dulcimer. Hmm. And, the, you know, yeah. there's, you know, Anthony's a very creative guy. He uh, was a Smithsonian fellow musicologist, but this is a band that I have been working for literally for almost 30 years. Now, they don't tour a lot, but when they do, he calls me Mr. Wizard. He just doesn't want to work with anyone else.
0: <laughs> well, and so and you had mentioned to me um that I guess sound on stage and some others that uh, because of these like um alternative uh instruments, you're kind of known for being able to do uh, I was the- I was kind
1: of their specialist for a while for anything ethnic with instruments that Jerry and Ann couldn't pronounce.
0: <laughs> That's one way of putting it.
1: That's when uh Bob Walker was basically doing the hiring and scheduling. But you know, I also did a couple of gospel shows for them because I'm a nice polite boy and I wasn't gonna show up. I would not show up in my megadeth t-shirt, you know, cigarette hanging out of my mouth.
0: <laughs> Save that for the let me show. Um yeah. I'm I'm curious. So after after Bob Cohen, um did you have any mentors or people that you were, or was just, you know, by osmosis people you were around or did, you know, what was that well, like after? Mostly having-
1: by osmosis. Like, you know, I worked, you know, when I was working for sound on stage, I'd be paired with, you know, like Bugsy Jim Moran or, you know, I just paid attention. Bob was pro- Bob, Jeff Manville. Bob were my best teachers. I learned a lot from Fred Katero, but he's primarily a recording engineer. But in his case, I learned a lot of, you know, mic technique, you know, because Fred was the master of that. Fred, Fred's one of those guys who could mic anything with an SM57 and make it work. <laughs> that doesn't mean that's what he used. He was, uh, he was a staff engineer at Columbia Records when they were recording Broadway show original cast recordings direct to three tracks in real time. Wow. So for him, it was like mixing a live band, really. But I've always been a pretty quick study, and I've listened to people. Like, you know, just hanging around uh, Don Pearson.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah. Learned a lot, just paying attention when Don Pearson's working.
0: I'm sure. um, Where would you run into him and uh, what was your interaction with him?
1: I'd be uh, at the music hall. Like, you know, he'd come in with the Grateful Dead. You know, or, uh, God, I forget what band it was. There's one band that wanted to record and they wanted to use Gamble preamps to record, so he was down in the basement with a Gamble console. (laughs) But also... We all, we ran into each other at AES shows. We ran into each other at... Uh,
0: right, at Nam or... or was, was NAMM NAM? Or, yeah. or
1: just, you know, festivals in the Bay Area. There's um, uh, the San Francisco Symphony Association every other year would throw the black and white ball, which, where they take over the whole Civic Center and they have like nine different stages. Well... One year after the earthquake, they couldn't use the Civic Center. So they actually did it on the base of Market Street. And they put all of the dance bands, including Dick Bright's SRO, the one I was working for, on the same stage. But we none of us could do sound checks because they didn't close the street until 3 p.m. the night of the show. So we're all there. And we, re- we look around and say, you know, if all seven of us walk, (laughs) there's no dance tonight (laughs) because they had, you know, all of the, you know, all of the local popular dance bands. And I think uh, ultrasound was doing one stage and Jerry was doing another stage. And I I don't know who all else was here. Then it was a while before, Sound image, delicate, moved into this market. Mm. That is, from my perspective, a fairly recent development. The first time a sound I I dealt with a sound image uh, system at the music hall is uh, the Amazing Rhythm Aces came in, and they brought in a sound image system. And uh, what was his name? Uh, Shadon's. Ross Rizzo or something oh, uh,
0: like uh, that. Ross Rizzo. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And he and he was incredibly rude to me. Basically, <laughs> he, he looked at the Arab and just says, "I ain't shows with that shit." I said, "I you get some real speakers." like, and then I met Shadon. and Shadon and I hit it off right away. So,
0: yeah, Dave. Dave's been great. We've been we've been talking a bunch lately, and I'm I'm looking forward to to recording with him as well. um So you know. You, you, you've talked about some highlights. I mean, what's, is there, um, you know, is there another highlight or memorable moment from your, from your time that kind of just really sticks out to you? I mean, you know, it's, or w- what is it like to look back and think about, you know, how you stumbled into this because you were working at a newspaper place or whatever, AV in high oh. school and, 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 and what you've been able to accomplish. Do you, have you taken time to kind of reflect on that journey and, um, and what that's meant for you? Well, I've
1: avoided making an honest living. For, no. <laughs> you want to, no, I never became a librarian, but I still think like one. Yeah, you, know, you should see my, you know, the way I archive my files and such. Um, but it's something I just kind of stumbled into and I liked. You know, I like live music. I like being able to work with live musicians. Most of them anyway. (laughs) And there's been more good than bad. But I've never been at the cutting edge technologically. I've never been the big tour guy. I found out pretty early on, as far back as Lamb, that I really didn't enjoy doing arena shows. I really prefer playing, as I put it, places where I can see the expression on the singer's face without iMag. Mm Mm-hmm. And so the music, falling into the music hall was, I contend that for at least 30, you know, nearly 30 of those years, that was one of the best house sound guy gigs in the United States because of the incredible variety of music they booked. Supportive management. You know, I, I couldn't just, you know, say, go buy me this $100,000 console, but if I really needed something, they would make a sincere effort to get it. And that club, you know, because they booked jazz and they booked folk and they booked comedy shows and, you know, theater, you know, little theater pieces. For example, Van Morrison. Sometimes Van would have his own sound man. Sometimes he wouldn't. Sometimes he to have his own sound man and fire him at the sound check. <laughs> it's just, you know. And from the music hall sprung, you know, some of my touring jobs, the band Oregon came in with the Great American Music Hall. We hit it off r- right away. And there's still, as I said in that sheet, my all-time favorite band to mix because they really can mix. And I can bring everything I learned about unusual instruments, strange unusual combinations of instruments and paying attention to a band that's improvising most of the time. Oregon as a band, especially with the original lineup, they never played the same set twice in a row because of the four of them, they rotated who got to write the set list. Hmm. And you have you know, uh, you know you have twelve string guitar, classical guitar, piano, French horn, fugal horn, and synthesizers and sequencer. And that's just one guy. <laughs> then there's the guy who plays sitar, tabla, conga drums, acoustic guitar, and clarinet. The bass player mostly just played bass, but he could also play piano or viola. And then there's Paul McCandless at that time played mostly double reads, which wasn't exactly common in jazz music Hmm. and like i say just still one of my favorite bands to work with listen to and three the three surviving members of the original lineup were still very good close friends so a
0: question a question that i've been asking a lot of people this year and with this podcast and and signals and noise is uh if you, um, this may not be something you've thought of, and it's fine. Uh, if you could define your your legacy or what you'd want to be known for, how would you how would you define that? For me, yeah,
1: the greatest compliment I ever get is at the you know at a boy thank you from the stage. It's when it's a musician that I've worked with before. Comes into a venue, whether it be the Music Hall, Dinkelspiel Auditorium at Stanford University, the California Jazz Conservatory where I teach one semester a year, or a hotel ballroom with Beach Blanket Babylon, the Cabaret Show that just closed after 40 years here in San Francisco. That look of comfort and relief on the face of a performer who recognizes me and feels that they're in good hands. This is the biggest, you know, thank you, masked man, I ever get.
0: Uh, that's awesome. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's, um, you know, like for, for myself, you know, primarily was a modern engineer when I was touring. That was uh-huh that was a lot of what I enjoyed was that, that direct feedback of like Mm -hmm. you knew you contributed to that show, the comfort that they had in you by seeing you reading Mm -hmm. that body language, like that, that that symbiotic relationship that happens there that, yeah, there's definitely nothing like, um, I mean, it's one thing obviously to get a crowd excited to feel that energy, but when you know, you directly uh, influenced that artist and had that comfort, Mm -hmm. it's definitely something special.
1: Yeah. It's, uh, Yeah. It's not, you know, there's that, the, you know, the unnamed member of the band thing. I've never felt that I was part of the band, but I was of the band. If that's not too metaphysical.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. Because
1: it's not about me. It's their music. It's just my job to, because I've been mostly in front of house engineer. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, I do. I still have. I still have the welts on my back from doing monitors with David Crosby. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd just rather not mention him, and I just did, and I shouldn't have. Uh, <laughs> on the other, on, hand, uh, what I will mention is before Tom Waits was really huge, and he didn't tour with his own tax. The request was. I want my monitors to sound like they got chapped lips. (laughs) (laughs) And he goes, okay, let's see. Let's process that. He actually wants a little sibilance, but not too much (laughs) sibilance. And he wants it to be like a little underwater sounding, maybe. And whatever it was, he was happy. (laughs) I mean, that's one of the best monitors. That's one of the best monitor requests i ever got the most unusual was the brazilian guy playing an acoustic guitar into a microphone who actually stopped mid song and said lee just turn me off in the monitors completely i'd never heard that before from a guitar player
0: <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's rare for sure
1: <laughs> well
0: well, Lee, yeah. I, I, uh, I I appreciate your time. Uh, I, this, oh. the stories. I know. I know there's. You know, it's like I say to everyone. It's difficult to cover a you know you know forty oh. plus year career in a you know hour, two hours, or however long we've been recording now. Yeah. <laughs>
1: well, like I say, I've been I've been very fortunate. I've I've been fired very infrequently. I've quit more than I've fought, been fired. And I've got, you know, even if it ended in 2019, we're looking at nearly 50 years at the Great American Music Hall, 30 years with Anthony's band, 20 years with Stanford. I've got, either I have a lot of inertia or I manage to gravitate towards symbiotic relationships where they like me, I like them, and we can do shows together
0: yeah i mean there's there's something to be said for consistency you know mm-hmm. uh you know you don't you don't don't fix what, what, what's not broke you know so it's mm-hmm. there's something to be said for that
1: yep and then i've got to be Zelig. yeah you know, i got to be the not quite anonymous but i'm always in the middle of stuff i've never you know i've never been the star i've never been you know the superstar sound guy i've never you know But I've been in the middle of some incredible situations.